Welcome to Investing for Ocean Impact, the podcast providing the business case for conserving our ocean. I'm Dorothy Hare. When it comes to financing marine and coastal conservation and restoration, what role is there for the world's multinational banks and insurance companies? They command vast amounts of money that could be used to help nature-based solutions. So how can they align their organizations with these priorities? And what policy signals does the world of finance need so that it can really get involved? Joining me on these episodes are Judson Berkey, Managing Director of Sustainability Regulatory Strategy at the Swiss bank UBS. Hello, great to be here. Chip Cunliffe, Biodiversity Director at AXA XL, a subsidiary of the global insurance company AXA. Thanks, Dorothy. Great to be here as well. Moritz von Unger, Policy Director at Climate Consultancy Silvestro. Hi, Dorothy. Thank you for having me. At the end, you will also hear from Martin Curring, Head of the World Ocean Initiative on the Economist's upcoming World Ocean Summit 2020. Judson, why is a big bank like UBS interested in nature-based solution and particularly the blue side of things? Yeah, thanks for the question, Dorothy. I mean, as you said, we are a bank, we are an asset manager, so we do think in terms of risks and opportunities. Um, so when it comes to oceans, there are both great risks and opportunities attached to them. This goes back a few years, but I think there was a, an OECD study at one point that said around 2.5% of global gross value add GDP can be attached to the oceans, 30 to 40 million jobs potentially connected to the ocean economy by, say, 2030. A garbage truck of plastic goes in the ocean per minute almost. So you know, clearly we are impacting the oceans in great ways. So, so for a bank like UBS, it is about starting to understand that in more depth. But what really gets us interested, obviously, is when our clients are interested. Um, so every year we go out to around uh, 3,000 of our private clients and around 1,000 small business owners in 15 markets globally and ask them around sustainability topics and investing more broadly, obviously. And so the most recent survey was in fall of last year. And you know, not surprisingly, about 46% said climate was something they wanted to really figure out how to engage with through their investments. But interestingly, at 42% was water and at 39% was waste. And now not all of waste is attached to the oceans, but there's a connection. So certainly it's clear that you know, at the level of our private clients, you know, the ones that we manage almost $4 trillion of, of assets for annually, you know, they have an interest in these topics. So certainly it's in our interest to become interested and understand the topic in more depth so that we can properly service our clients. And what kind of activities is UBS doing to investigate or service your clients in this area? It comes in all, all forms. Um, you know, on our banking side, so more of our lending activity, we've historically had a set of environmental social risk policies that help guide our lending activities and provide bright lines for business we won't do, provide areas where we do enhanced due diligence before we engage in lending. And on the private client side, we've obviously, um, like many of our peers, had particular investment products that are maybe focused on themes, you know, water, forestry, your natural resources generally. But a really interesting area that's developing is actually with some of our more exclusive clients, our ultra high net worth clients, who really want to think about impact, sometimes on a philanthropic basis, sometimes on a you know, monetary return basis, but really want to start to understand how they can move the needle on some of these more long-term 
issues, you know, like climate, like environment, like water, oceans, with their investments. So we've been trying to explore this. You know, this is not something that we're necessarily the experts in oceans or, or the blue economy. But we've been trying to reach out to some leading experts and work with them to understand what can be done. So we've done a series of, of, of papers um, over the past year or so with the Blue Natural Capital Financing Facility. We had to try and develop a number of research thought pieces around what might be possible to invest in when it comes to the ocean economy, when it comes to broader nature topics. And that's something that we will start to weave into our interactions with our clients when they say they want to somehow do something with their investments and really start to work with them through that process of what is possible. And Chip, I mean, for insurance sector, obviously the coastal zone is nothing new, but what about nature-based solution? How do we connect insurance and nature-based solutions? Well, look, I think there are two ways in which the insurance sector um, can or probably should be working um, in this space. One is uh, as a risk manager. And uh, as I'm sure most people will understand, you know, we as, as risk managers are, are looking to price risk. So there's a lot of work being undertaken around, you know, our, our understanding about mitigation of, you know, climate and ocean risks to those people and those businesses and clients that we have that have assets in and around the coastal areas. But of course, those that are most likely to be impacted by coastal and, and ocean risk will be those who are least able to afford it. So we're thinking about, you know, those in least developed countries and or emerging economies and SIDS, so small island developing states. And so we see our, our role as not just being able to develop products around nature, coral reef insurance, uh, insurance for mangroves, so e almost ecosystem interruption insurance. But of course, on the other side, we are an investor as well. Um, so AXA itself manages well, more than $1.4 trillion, oh, sorry, euros of investment. We announced uh, a 10-year, 200 million euro climate and diversity impact fund that focuses on the conservation of natural capital. And that will be put towards increasing the resilience of, of vulnerable communities. So I, I see our lead as being both the risk side and the investor side. But, you know, similar to Judson, really, Uh, you know, we're also able to utilize our leadership within the finance space to develop uh, new tools and to help lead the finance community in determining and agreeing uh, ways in which we should uh, be including nature-based solutions into our everyday decision-making. So, Chip, can you explain a little bit more? How does insurance work for coral reefs or mangrove? So, so. Reefs and mangroves provide resilience benefits to coastal communities. And in the case of, let's say, a coral reef off the coast of Mexico, actually, they provide the tourism dollars, given that you know people go to these hotels, they dive on the reefs. But also, those reef systems provide protection from tropical cyclones. And the idea behind a, a, a coral reef policy, let's say, is that if a tropical cyclone got to a category three, then a trigger would pay out whereby the money that's paid into a, a fund, as you would for a, a house policy or a, for your car, immediately after a, a hurricane hits, then that would be paid out so that the first responders can go out there and rebuild and manage the reef system. And of course, 
for a coral reef, it's really important to do that really quickly. So a parametric insurance product, which pays out literally within days, is exactly the kind of product we need. If you're looking at indemnity product, which basically means you have to go in there, you have to assess the reef damage, and then you get paid out, well, that can take weeks and or months. But with a coral reef, it's really critical you get in there quickly. And the same can be said for a mangrove. And ultimately, these kind of products are, are new, innovative, and actually quite exciting uh, for an insurance product. Moritz, hearing all these you know, advancements from the insurance side, but also from the interest from the big banks, what is your reaction to that? Look, Dorothy, I, I think it's a very exciting development. And to see that one of the conventional industries that's out there obviously is very attentive to climate change. So for coastal wetlands, this means there's an understanding and a growing understanding that the more you degrade, the riskier it will be. So that's perfect. Second, it's also perfect to see that in case there is a major catastrophic event, that you are able to channel funding where it needs to be, obviously to vulnerable communities. And there are some interesting pilots out there, also to ecosystems themselves, you know, these coral reef insurances. So that's very positive. The economic case obviously is there. You know, it's like the more climate change there is, the more vulnerable we we are and the insurance profile will change. Now, whether there's a business case, especially in developing countries, I'm not yet sure if, if that's happening. I mean, obviously, it's, it looks very nice to have a project in Fiji and have something in, in Mexico and do something about corals. But whether this is something like a, a pioneer for a new industry, that would be something to look into. But my sense is that the more attentive and sensitive the insurance industry is to risks that are caused by coastal gray infrastructure that does not take into account the blue aspect, the sustainability aspect, then more and more infrastructure itself is changing. If you cannot insure, it's bad for, you know, it's like you have to improve your product. You have to improve your infrastructure. So there I'm, I'm very excited about to see. Also, the insurance industry can nudge a little bit. So uh, through the premium policy, can nudge a little bit restoration and conservation action. So that's, that's really interesting. So Chip, throwing the ball back to you and the challenge, is the insurance a boutique effort or can we really use sort of the insurance product to bring some of these nature-based solutions to scale? Well, I think at this stage you could say it's boutique, but ultimately the insurance industry is has to be there for the big picture. And, and I think that, you know, given climate change, given the impacts of it on people and society uh, around the world, governments cannot be picking up the tab forever. And I think that we, we've probably seen locations in the world where it's becoming more and more difficult, given the intensity of those tropical cyclones, if we're talking about, you know, the impact of them on communities. And I think that we within the industry have a, a, a critical role to play to, to take some of that uh, risk away from those governments. But of, of course, you know, one of the, the areas of focus for us all is the, I wouldn't say necessarily a lack of pipeline, but you know, the pipeline might be there, but they're very small projects. So how do we aggregate them to be uh, such a, a scale that we within the insurance industry can get involved in a, in a much bigger and more effective way? Now, of course, you've got things like microinsurance, which we can utilize. And, you know, there's some work going on in, in the Philippines through Aura, this the alliance. And that's around, you know, providing uh, insurance to small scale fishers. And indeed, when they're getting loans, 
they have this micro-insurance policy, which means that they don't get into this debt spiral if they do need to pay back their loans to the loan sharks. But then you go from the micro-insurance to the, so the, the bigger products. And this is where, you know, I think the use of parametric insurance, so a, an insurance product that's paid out on a trigger. So I think the different kind of um, products are available now. And indeed, I think that many within the, the industry are, are really looking to engage and identify where we can provide that level of risk certainty for those communities that are likely to be impacted most. Yeah, let me just pick up on that, Dorothy. I think Moritz made a good point about, you know, are things investable? And I think Chip was making the point, are things scalable? And I guess from our perspective, we're not sure, but we want to at least try and figure it, help figure it out. So we actually partnered with a group called Earth Security a couple of years ago and wrote a, a report about a, a sort of a concept basically called the Mangrove 40. You're trying to identify 40 cities around the world that have the potential for significant mangrove restoration. And the idea was, you know, could those be invested in? You know, could they generate economic returns off the back of them, either through you know, carbon credits, you know, sort of ecotourism facilities? Is there a way to wrap together into into a fund structure, say, you know, a, a suite of investments across the globe and, and really make that an investable product? Now, we're not trying to do all 40 at once, but we're trying to at least take a few and pilot something out of our Singapore operations. And it is a little bit not quite philanthropic, but not quite, you know, market-based financial returns or something in between it, which we will target more to our, our ultra high net worth clients who want to do some kind of impact type investment and may you're not necessarily absolutely want your know, market-based returns. But I think that's the kind of thing that, that we're trying to experiment with. And we're not the only ones. HSBC also launched something you know, a few months ago, a little bit like this. But I think this is the kind of innovation that the finance sector, I think, wants to start trying to do and see if we can figure out how we can be part of solutions. But if, if I'm Absolutely honest. I don't think we know yet how this works. And certainly it is very much a you know, voyage of discovery and a lot of R&D going on right now. But yeah, Judson, continuing on the, the risk discussion, but maybe from the other angle, there's a lot of sort of discussions about disclosure efforts. And is that something that can help bring nature-based solution to scale? You know, I think certainly getting better information out into the marketplace you know, certainly can't hurt and absolutely hopefully can help. I think part of what is missing is the ability to try and put better values on the risks and opportunities, understanding you know, where they may be across value change and, and, and ultimately how they can lead into company valuations. Yeah, I think there is a need to try and get better information into the market. Yeah, a bit like we've seen with climate over the years. You know, there's been a the whole effort to have good disclosure around carbon emissions you know, that then you know, almost sort of fed into the overall objective to to you know kind of come up with policy you know statements you know net zero that then led to your net zero commitments by companies transition plans and now you start to see clear valuation differences amongst companies based on their own transition plans so i think that's sort of dynamic related to nature broadly particularly kind of oceans are our topic today you know, hopefully can help make the market mechanism work better moritz when talking about disclosure are you more positive about those picking up and sort of changing the marketplace? Absolutely. I'm, I'm a huge fan and have always been. Most everything starts in this area of voluntary. There's a lot of corporate initiatives where they start. So it's very exciting. They also have the knowledge and know how they can report and what they can do. I'm very excited about also how fast it is moving towards climate-related risks where you look at how are physical assets impacted and how is your exposure to regulation. You know, it's like if you think of this whole discussion of stranded assets, how do 
corporations need to take into account a changing world where where everything is moving towards a net zero future? How do they have to change? And now it's becoming very focused on nature and biodiversity, including nature-based solutions with a new reporting standard that's evolving. Obviously, there are challenges, you know, like what kind of metrics do you use? It's usually very simple to work in terms of CO2. So nature means something bigger than that. But it's a very interesting trend. It will be very interesting also to see how this moves from a soft, you know, corporate voluntary framework into something that regulators pick up. So Judson, you are actually a member of the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosure, the TNFD. Can you tell us a little bit from the inside, how does that process work and how do companies react to that? Do they want it? Yeah, I think at the simplest level, it's trying to repeat the dynamic that we described earlier around climate. You know, there was the task force for climate-related disclosures that in 2017 came out with a set of global recommendations for corporate climate disclosures, and, and that then sort of kicked off the whole process I, I described before. So the idea is to try and repeat some of that for nature, but I think as more it's highlighted, your know, nature is more complicated. It, it doesn't have that nice, easy metric you can aggregate everything up into, CO2 equivalents. So it's going to be more complicated to try and think through, you know, what are the different aspects of nature? How can you try and measure them? But I think this TNFD that you mentioned, this a nature disclosure group, it, it's also trying to do in some sense a little bit more than what was done with the climate disclosure framework, and that it's also trying to provide support for companies that are really starting their own journey on the nature topic. So the goal really is to um, try and push out into the marketplace, not only a set of disclosure recommendations, but also um, your set of tools, guidance, you know, links to data sources, really just to try and almost accelerate the whole economy-wide effort to understand and, and therefore manage nature-based risks you know, more quickly and, and, and ideally seize the opportunities sooner, while at the same time obviously putting out good um, set of, of data and, and information base so that you know, markets really can be better informed about nature-based risks and opportunities. And Chip, for the work you do with the Aura, the Ocean Risk and Resilience Action Alliance, is disclosure a topic that is being discussed there? It is. I think it's, well, as Justin was just saying there, you know, much more about, at the moment, the corporate sector disclosing. And we're very much sort of focused, given we're insurance sort of on the metrics and data side. But I think that there's a need to disclose at different scales. If it was possible to disclose at a smaller scale, then I think we'd actually be quite well informed of of what the opportunities may be out there to to invest in. Having said that, I think it's we're at the very beginning, and you know we're we're sort of certainly a number of years away. I mean, I know that the disclosure that we're working on with Judson, I think, is twenty twenty three. So I think you know we, we've got a, a while to go until we're actually in a, in a place where we can actually do so. And Judson, do you think? Moritz and, and everyone mentioned sort of the data that needs to go into this effort and, and really also for the insurance product, we need this data to really inform the efforts. Is there sort of some ideas of sharing of information between the insurance sector and the disclosure efforts to move some of these, um, yeah, overcome some of these data hurdles? I mean, definitely one of the challenges is getting the data that's available now, whether that is, you know, connected to government and, and international organizations that have a lot of data available, and obviously the corporate sector has it. So trying to figure out how, how to unlock that and, and make that more available is certainly you know, going to be helpful to all. 
may well be challenges with that. You know, certain data is collected for proprietary reasons, so it may not be able to be made freely available. But I think certainly we've seen on climate, for example, that you know, the banks have made quite good use of you know, data collected by insurers and reinsurers. So I think um, yeah, there's got to be a collaborative effort here and and, and you know, figure out how we can you know, learn together and get data more transparent uh, more quickly, but also figure out you know, what really we're trying to measure um, in terms of you know, you know, nature is more complicated. You know, it's, it's very location specific. So what are the metrics we're really trying to measure that will, can actually lead to something we can manage? And I, I think there's a lot of thinking there. So if the chip's absolutely right, it's going to be a few years you know, before the nature-based disclosure framework really lands in its final form. The goal is to get something out early, get some feedback, let people test it, try it out, and then figure out you know, how to further iterate it over a one to two year period. And in terms of the, the knowledge partners, I know that IUCN and a few others recently sort of got welcomed as knowledge partners to the nature disclosure effort. What do you see their role? Yeah, I think they can bring huge amounts of expertise and understanding. I've said earlier, earlier on the discussion, you know, we in banks, we are not you know, nature experts by nature. <laughs> it's not what we were trained in. It's not what our understanding is. We're trying to learn as quickly as we can. You are trying to bring in expertise where we can. But we will never have the, you know, the level of scientific knowledge and understanding that groups like IUCN come with. So to the extent that that deep knowledge base can be you know, linked up with our knowledge of what we're good at, which is you know the finance markets, I think there can hopefully be a good combination there about just you know what are the important things to try and track and measure, and and how can that be done, and where's the data, and then you know what the finance sector can help with is how to translate that into into the markets, and what the corporate sector obviously can do is is you know, they're really uh, in, in many cases on the front lines of trying to manage and work through a lot of these nature based dependencies and impacts, so they are very key to making this whole whole chain kind of work. Great, thank you. Moritz, I want to move to you and the international level. Sort of there's a lot of meetings happening on climate, biodiversity, sustainable development. And how do you see that international movement impacting efforts like the disclosure efforts, the insurance sectors? Are we seeing enough signals coming from the international community? Well, you know, the Paris Agreement is a treasure, obviously. One of the inherent challenges is that there may be a lack of a platform for non-state actors, for corporations, to do what governments say, you know, say to come forward with nationally determined contributions, NDCs, and non-state actors are not really present in this discourse. So it, it has to be an effort to attach something which, if you want, resembles a little bit this government effort of coming up with commitments, following up on them, and strengthening them. So one of the challenges on the corporate side has been for many years that at the pledge level, everything is great. You know, like it looks very interesting and ambitious. But then, you know, it's like it's also, if you do dig into what has happened after, sometimes it's very hard to get information. It's very hard to see if there was really progress. It's very hard to see if there's also an evolution in terms of strengthening. Now, how this can be helped is something is a very interesting exercise. Every year there's one big conference where countries come up with strengthened ambitions of what they have promised last year. So it's very important. So, and in a way it's mimicked by the corporate world also to do something like that. Now we have to make sure that we can use, especially the reporting and the disclosure 
that are provided to governments, we can use them also in the corporate world. And vice versa, it's also, it's not just that governments are teaching corporations what they should do, but, you know, quite the contrary. It can be, you know, it's like technology comes from corporations. Innovation comes from corporations. Thinking about supply chains, transnational effects of mitigation policies, but also adaptation policies comes from corporations. So there's something that needs to, you know, it's like also link back and inform the international community as such, the government. So yes, it's a moving development and it's very important to keep track of that. And Judson, do you think for getting big banks and the corporates moving on nature-based solution investment, do you see a need for more signals from international policy fora like the Climate Convention? I mean, certainly having that stake in the ground like we did for climate with the Paris Agreement, well below two degrees, I mean, it gives everyone a North Star to work towards. What's obviously more challenging you know, with nature is you know, what are those North Stars that we can have as stakes in the ground, you know, whether it's you know, protection of a certain percentage of the oceans or, or, or forests or other things that we can really you know, have a, a clear orientating point you know, to try and navigate towards. I think that would be very, very valuable because that then gives companies you know, you know, a direction of travel, you know, a clear target they're moving towards. And that also gives the finance sector then the ability you know, to start to differentiate companies, which companies are, are moving on, on a sound transition path, which ones you know, maybe want to get moving but haven't figured it out yet, and which ones are laggards. And, and obviously, we want our clients to be the ones that are successfully transitioning, but we also want to help our clients. It's not just about, you know, cutting and running from certain clients or, or divesting. It really is about you know, working with our clients so that their success is our success. But all of that is made much, much easier, yes, when there's a clear governmental commitment to a endpoint, you know, and there is that clear policy signal. And Chip, from the efforts you engage in, I mean, we're all waiting for the post-2020 biodiversity agreement to come out. Are signals like that helpful also in the efforts that you engaged in? Of course they are. I mean, when we're talking about the ocean and when we're talking blue i think that you know we need to be rather than talking about the millions we need to be talking about the the billions and the trillions and we're not there yet however i think that the the kind of thing we need to see is a, a price for for blue carbon or in fact not necessarily blue carbon just a price for carbon um, it's something we haven't necessarily discussed today but you know if we're looking at um, the likes of mangroves and seagrass beds and other ecosystems, they are hugely rich in being able to take in carbon and store it. And, you know, ultimately, if we are looking to put a price on or valuing those ecosystems, then one of the ways in which we can do so is by pricing carbon into it. And by developing a, a, a carbon price, then you're you're creating a value for those ecosystems uh, to be kept in the ground or in the sea. And of course, that provides you know the resilience benefits and the the, the food security benefits and the ecosystem benefits, etc., to those locations. So I think that that would be a critical piece of the puzzle for all of us. I think that there's a, a real need for I've already heard it today about you know the need for collaboration, um, and I think this is where Aura and the Alliance really sort of steps in to provide that convening power around you know governments and the private sector and the NGO community and those people you know those that that work at, on at the ground level to to develop solutions um and i think it's a really critical piece of the puzzle about you know us doing so to develop almost a the ocean financial architecture that's required 
And you know, part of what Aura is doing is developing this sea change impact financing facility. Really wanting to try and do that, and I think that uh, we've all got a great part to play in that. You know, I think Chip absolutely hit it on the head in terms of collaboration. We are very much putting a strong emphasis on partnerships now, and in terms of trying to move on all these you know, sustainability-related issues. You know, be it climate, be it environment, you know, social issues, and obviously the blue issues that we're talking about today. Because I mean, none of us can do it alone. Is we need that aspect of partnerships across, you know, the, the corporate sector, you know, the financial sector, you know, the government sector, you know, civil society, the scientific community. So the better we can find the platforms to work together, I think we'll all we'll achieve our goals more quickly. I, I totally agree, and I, I think everyone this should be, you know, it's like an invitation for governments, for non-state actors, including corporation, to come out of the closet and. You know, it's like disclose what you have, try to communicate what's there, try to find solutions on nature-based solutions and work towards progress. That's all we can do. One important forum for finding these kinds of solutions is going to be the World Ocean Summit at the start of March. So I spoke to Martin Curring, head of The Economist's World Ocean Initiative, about what is going to happen. We have uh, run the World Ocean Summit since 2012 at the Economist Group, and it's really the global premier event when it comes to you know bringing policymakers, business leaders, campaigners, and scientists together to to really discuss you know kind of fully and frankly you know what does a sustainable future for the ocean economy look like, and we see ourselves very much as kind of being part of the overall conversation, you know, with the UN Ocean Conference, for example, and and other big events, the Our Ocean Conference being part of that global community. And as a media organization, we are not really competing with other events in this space. I mean, we filter what's important, as you know, from The Economist, you know, we make the big challenges accessible. We focus on solutions. We focus on real world impact. And over the years, we have uh, been a platform to kind of announce and accelerate kind of groundbreaking new partnership and initiatives. We, we want, you know, these, these partners to come to us as well, to use our platform to announce these new developments. So, um, in terms of launching new papers on the blue economy, making new commitments. I mean, last year, uh, we had a couple of major announcements as well at the World Ocean Summit. So we had the UN Environment Programs Finance Initiative often works with us to kind of make announcements. So they launched their practical toolkit, you know, for financial institutions to pivot their activities towards financing as kind of sustainable blue economy. That, that's what they launched there. So what's really unique about us, in, in, in addition to being a major global event, is that we bring economist impact into this, which kind of combines kind of the rigor of a think tank, as well as, you know, the creativity of a media brand to really engage a globally influential audience. And what do you expect in terms of finance and nature-based solutions? So really restoring and conserving our ocean? Yeah, that's, that's a really important uh, topic. I mean, our audience is very much interested in financial issues. We have about up to 10% or so of our audience at the summit is usually from the financial sector, but basically others like shipping energy are also interested in financial issues because obviously raising funds and making things happen is very important. You know, about a quarter of our newsletter audience is from the financial sector. So we get a lot of interest in what we do uh, in terms of from the financial sector. 
And as I mentioned, the World Ocean Summit is really part of a wider ecosystem. So it's part of the World Ocean Initiative. And, you know, it's, it's really kind of true to the economist's DNA to look at these kind of cross-cutting issues. So we have blue finance, governance, and innovation are the three levers of change that we have identified. And each really look at not only kind of what and why uh, we need a sustainable ocean, but also how we can actually create a sustainable ocean economy. And blue finance, for example, we released a report recently on the sustainable ocean economy 2030. And finance plays a major role in that. We also do a lot on the World Ocean Initiative in terms of you know, how to scale up blue carbon projects. We, we did some work on how investors can harness a new blue finance opportunities from, for example, blue bonds, public-private partnerships, ETFs, um, exchange-traded funds, uh, blue carbon credits, and these kind of things. So there's a lot of uh, exciting, very high-level speakers from governments, but also, for example, the UN Capital Development Fund, from the Capitalist Coalition. So there, there's a lot of excitement around finance. There will be lots of exciting opportunities to look beyond traditional finance and several other efforts to explore funding for blue nature-based solutions. It will be running online between the 1st and the 4th of March. Thank you to my guests this week, Judson Berkey, Chip Cunliffe, Moritz von Unger and Martin Köring. Next time, we're bringing together finance at all levels, from global trust funds to brand new decentralized approaches. What are the best ways to build an investable pipeline for nature-based solutions within developing countries? Tune in to find out. Investing for Ocean Impact is a fresh air production on behalf of IUCN's Blue Natural Capital Financing Facility. It was produced by Phil Sansom with production assistance from Michelle Burnett. Follow or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to find out more about what the BNCFF does, please visit our website, bluenaturalcapital.org. Until next time, I'm Dorothy Hare. Thank you for listening. <laughs>